How can you take one popular food cart and make it into an international franchise brand? That's what the Halal Guys is doing right now. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, the executive editor of Restaurant Business Magazine, and in this week's edition of A Deeper Dive, I talk with Ahmed Abulanin, the CEO of Halal Guys, to talk about growth. Ahmed has a fascinating story to tell about how the company grew out of its New York roots, ultimately decided to franchise, and then saw opportunities not only in the United States, but around the world, especially Europe. He also talks about the company's broad consumer appeal. But Ahmed also has some fascinating things to say about how the company adapts to technology, and especially delivery. As a New York-based chain, delivery was a must-have, but it is adapted to use it in franchise locations outside of that market, and delivery makes up a sizable percentage of its overall business. And later in the podcast, I talk about the poor fate of small publicly traded restaurant brands. But first, here's Ahmed Abulanin. Okay, I am here with Ahmed Abulanin. Uh, Ahmed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, so I uh, understand you guys uh, just opened your first location in, across, uh, in uh, London, is that right? Yes, first location in London, which is very exciting, very amazing. Mm-hmm. And what what are your plans? Uh, what are your plans for that country? Is that the first one that you've had in the United Kingdom, or? So actually, this is the first one we had in Europe, and the plan mm-hmm. for the UK for twenty more locations to be developed. The second one, second location, in the UK is coming in the next three to four months. So hopefully, sometime in July or August. And um, you, you, so you have so you, you you must be pretty excited about that particular market, aren't you? <laughs> I really, yeah, I'm really excited. I actually was there in the grand opening and the uh, wait time was just massive. And uh, the mm-hmm. way that people love our brand international is just, it's just amazing. Not expected, of course, from our side, but it's, it's great. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. We're extremely excited about uh, growing the brand in the European market. Mm-hmm. Right. So tell me, uh, uh, how many locations are you guys at right now? And, and, um, and, and where, how do you, what are your plans this year in terms of development? Yeah, sure. So we have up to today, there was another location that opened last week. So up to today will be 87 locations, uh, system wide open. And we have uh, another 400 locations in development, which should come in the next uh, five to seven years. Mm-hmm. The plan for, the plan for this year, which uh, those 87 locations to be doubled, of course, a give and take uh, based on construction, build out, uh, development, all of these things. Mm-hmm. Now, are you uh, are you anticipating that you know how many how much of this development is going to be coming outside of the United States versus inside? So outside the United States, we have uh, 20 locations in the UK mm-hmm. will be developing, 10 locations in South Korea, six locations in Indonesia and uh, 10 locations in Malaysia. So mm-hmm. those are done outside the States. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so t- tell us a little bit about, about the history of Halal Guys. Um, where did you, how did you get to this point? Yeah, sure. So let me go all the way from the beginning when the brand started. Sure. was uh, sometime around uh, 1990 when the three founders transition, did that transition from a single hot dog cart to a full halal meal cart. And the reason they did that, 
because they saw huge demand at that time on halal meals in New York City. You can imagine mm-hmm. when you're in New York City and you cannot find halal meal if you're a Muslim. And they had to just find different ways to get halal food, which was very, very hard for them. So they came up with the idea of having a full halal meal at that time, which transitioned very well in the beginning with Muslim cabbies, and they found mm-hmm. a huge demand. So over the years, they continued doing what they're doing, focusing, providing high-quality, fresh food every single day. They never thought about growth. They never thought about any of that. They were just a day-to-day, taking it a day-to-day. Over the years, people loved, started loving our food, and we started seeing customers from every different nationality, from every different race. And up to today, if you look at our customers, you see almost 95% of our customers are not Muslim. So over the years, no matter what the weather was, no matter what kind of conditions you can face, New York City streets, they were there for our customers, focus on quality, focus on the customer hospitality piece, and making sure the customer is the happiest with full halal meal, uh, cheap in prices, affordable to everyone, and consistent. Every time they come, they found the same thing. So mm. but the brand kicked it up from there. And, uh, sometime mid-2000s, that's uh, all the way to 2006, 2007. So we did, over the years, we didn't have a name. So our customers mm-hmm. were calling us at some point, uh, combo platters or calling us the, the chicken guys, chicken and rice platters, too many different names they were calling us. And that's when around 2007, 2008, the customer came to us and just called us the hall guys. So we asked the guy, who is the hall guys? They told us you. And you're, you're a bunch of guys standing in the street and you're selling halal food. And that's how we took the name from there and registered it under our, uh, our trademark. And that's how the hall mm-hmm. guys became. So we did that oh. all the way to 2014. There was a lot of approaches from different franchise brokers for us to franchise. But 2014, we felt like it was the right moment to do that. And that's when we took the approach and we agreed to start franchising. When we did that, we opened our first corporate location in New York City to see how the brick and mortar restaurant will work with a brand like ours, mm-hmm. which worked out very well. So our first location was in the lower east side of Manhattan. That was East 14th Street and 2nd Avenue which came out very, very successful. And from, and we just took it from there, start building the remaining of our locations. Second corporate mm-hmm. location just came a year after, which became the role model for our franchise model from uh, design perspective, uh, equipment, all of these things. And mm-hmm. after that, our first franchise location opened around, sometime around August 2015. And we just continue building stores since then. Mm-hmm. Today. So uh, was it was it a tough transition to go from you know a bunch of carts to um, to a, to a brick and mortar location? I mean, what was there any sort of any difficult transition there, or did you what, what kind of things did you have to learn? So I'll tell you, it was not difficult, but it was uh, it was learning experience because you're transitioning from a cart where you don't have any rules and regulations in mm-hmm. the street that control the crowd, control people to a brick and mortar where you pay 
you pay rent, you pay electricity, there is more of a controlled environment where you need to have specific systems in place to control that. So, mm-hmm. so we had to put all these operation measures, uh, hire the right team, the right staff to, to build a company from there. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what we did. In addition to putting the right infrastructure in place for the whole franchise system, which that comes with all hiring the right staff, hiring the right people for each single department to kick out that franchise model from there and build the brand. Right. Right. So like it, traditionally, how many people would traditionally work with one of the car would work one of the carts? Is it one or two people? It wasn't, it was just a, like, it was a fairly small operation if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't it? it started, it started very small operation. Uh, in mm-hmm. the nineties, it was very small, two, three people, uh, mid two thousands, it grew a little bit more, which from what, from, you can say four to six people at every single cart. Really? Uh, during during to the yeah, the busy crowd because uh, mm-hmm. the lines our lines can wait up to from two to two hours and a half long and people just love it mm-hmm. people yeah. love to come hang out where our carts are not only for food just to hang out mm-hmm. with friends family all of these things just it became we became some sort of a destination and landmark in New York City mm-hmm. right. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, you definitely had some significant, uh, some significant lines for sure. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen them, um, get pretty long. Uh, and, uh, um, for a card, I always find that fascinating, um, that, that, that a card like that would, 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 would become that, uh, um, attractive of a destination, especially in a place like New York. But then again, you know, it's not entirely, you know, obviously those sorts of things aren't very unusual in that market. So, um, it's a, it's a market pretty well, uh, accustomed to that, but just to see all the, 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 the lengthy lines, uh, to a cart to me, you know, really must've spoke well to what you guys were serving. Exactly. Yeah. We did that. We did actually, we did a great job when we transitioned that inside the, the brick and mortars, because when we opened mm-hmm. our brick and mortars, the weight of the line weight was so long. I remember one of the, our lines was in first open in Philippines overseas. It was, mm-hmm. I believe it was, uh, three to four hours wait, which was just crazy. So we, that, that transition went from cars to stores all over the system, which is just pretty impressive to have that big of a line, big of a consumer that love our food and the brand. Mm-hmm. Do you have carts outside of New York or, or is it primarily brick and mortar now outside of New York City? No, outside of New York, all the brick and mortar. Okay. All right. And, um, so I, at the other, the one, one of the real fascinating parts of the story is that you said 95% of, of your customer base is, is non-Muslim. Is that right? Correct. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so if I'm, if I'm, uh, getting your story correct, you've, you've sort of evolved um, over, over a 20 plus year period from a, a concept that, that was catered largely to, to Muslim cabbies in New York City to one that has a fairly strong, uh, fan base, um, and is now expanding worldwide. Exactly. Yeah. You're 100% correct. And uh, one of the reasons also we took in consideration when we made the decision of franchising was, our customers that used to come at the cars always used to ask us 
why can't you come to different states? The I see I have seen personally a lot of customers that drive all the way from Canada, all the way from Boston. I have people that literally tell me we're coming all the way from California just to eat your food. So mm-hmm. when we hear all of these things, that w- was something that motivated us to open everywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. Did you ever find any sort of transition out, you know, going from, you know, it, it, it's always, New York is always just sort of in the United States. It's just a very, very different market from, from anywhere else. I mean, I mean, there are other urban areas, especially on the East coast that are relatively similar, but really on, I mean, let's face it, it's, it's more expensive than most places. It's, it's, it's really got a different customer base and, and, and a different, you know, and, and, and a much different population than say where I'm at, which is Minneapolis. Is it, is it, was it sort of, did you have to adjust anything to, to operate outside of New York? Did you have to rethink things or, or was a model so, is a model so different outside of New York that it just sort of kind of helped that along? Actually, we did not really have to change anything. All what we needed Mm -hmm. to do, all what needed to do was trying to transition that environment, that feeling that you get in the middle, standing in the middle of New York City middle midtown 53rd and 6th avenue where the cart's located try to get that feeling inside our pick and morris remind people that it's a new york brand it's not a mediterranean food it's an american mm-hmm. halal based brand that was built in new york city and now it's go- gone all over the states so in our brick and morris more what you see is pictures of the lines picture pictures of the main cards our logo and some part of the design elements inside the store, like, for example, the stainless steel, which you, you will see stainless steel inside our stores, which the carts are made of. A few things mm-hmm. like that, from a design perspective, try to remind our customers of how this started in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So you said that in 2014, you, you guys decided you were ready to franchise. How did you know that you were ready to take that particular step? Because... For the first, the first, uh, the first step was how much people are asking us to go everywhere in the country, mm-hmm. and we knew it's it's not it's not an easy project to head into, but all what it takes is the right infrastructure in place and the right people, and we're ready to do that. We're ready to get the right people that know how to do these things better than anyone else, and mm-hmm. we kicked it off from there. We want it to be mm-hmm. reachable to all our customers everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And and when did you start developing outside of the United States? When did that happen? So actually, outside the United States was early. I would say mm-hmm. beginning of 2016. Wow, that was beginning of 2016. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty big sea change. I think really over the past uh, decade. And I remember years ago when I would talk about international development and the long time theory was that you couldn't go outside the United States until you really had a well-established brand throughout the U.S. In other words, you had to be a certain size and and certainly couldn't be earlier in your franchise business. Um, uh, and and now that's completely different. And now it, it, it seems that the the overseas market is just as receptive to relatively uh, newly franchised. I know you're not a new new concept at all, but um, you know it, it's it's much more receptive to relatively new concepts than than it used to be. And I would imagine that a concept such as yours uh, would would really find a lot of very uh, eager markets. Correct, correct. Yeah, especially 
the halal, the halal and the fresh products, which uh, make us different than a lot of other brands. Mm-hmm. How does how, I mean besides just the the, the halal part? How, I mean, what 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 are how are you different from other brands? Uh, the the fresh concept. So our food mm-hmm. is getting gets cooked from scratch in front of the customer. So we serve our food in a fresh basis. So you don't get a food that was cooked from yesterday or from five, six hours ago. It's always fresh. And that, mm-hmm. that makes us different. The customer can taste that, that freshness in the food. Yeah. Right. Okay. So what's, what's your uh, development strategy like in the United States? What kind of markets are you, are you uh, targeting and, and where, where do you see this? Where do you see this concept going? So we're to our our development plan in the next few years was not to to sell to sell more franchises for only qualified groups mm-hmm. and to have a strong grip on any open locations that open from a quality perspective and food safety of course that's main the main thing for us before even flowing more than that anywhere because yes we have a great brand we have a great product in hand we have great food that customer love but we gotta protect that. We gotta do everything to protect that before mm-hmm. we go to a thousand units, two thousand units, all of these things, which is very easy if we wanna do it. But we rather have that controlled environment around our locations first before we go that far. So mm-hmm. I would say our development over, if I say over the next five, six years, we may, we may take a few new franchises to our system, which We'll uh, increase that number from 400, let's say, maybe to 600, 650. And, uh, yeah, we'll get, we're just going to take it step by step. There is no reason to rush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It's Well, I mean, r- rushing can be a major problem with, you know, any number of companies have run into problems when they've when they've uh, grown a little bit too fast. Uh, but you exactly. definitely seem to be taking things a lot more deliberate. Exactly. And we're, I think we're almost fine. 20, 23, 24 states across the United States. We already have locations there or development going on there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now do you, are you doing anything in terms of, of technology or anything like that? I mean, have you, um, uh, you know, are you guys doing delivery? We are actually, we're doing third body deliveries all system wise, but we're not doing in-house delivery yet. Mm-hmm. Is that sort so, of, uh, it's kind of a must yeah, in New York though, isn't it? It's kind of a must to do, do delivery in New York. Correct. Yeah. Delivery and catering. It's, it's a must. Yeah. Everyone, I personally order delivery when I'm at my house. So yeah. everyone has to do that. Yeah. Just, uh, they're very, very competitive uh, delivery service, which matters. Of course, you want to, you want to partner with the right uh, partner to make sure your quality is the same as you want it to be delivered to that customer. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's right. from a delivery perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you've, I mean, you're probably as well, you're, you're probably as well versed on, on how to operate with, you know, with delivery as a, as a certain portion of your, your sales as probably as many chains given again, given how important it is to the New York market. Correct. Yeah. So actually delivery is almost what, 30 to 40% of our sales, which is, really? it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's really, really good. That's excluding catering. So catering will be in addition to that. 
So you have 30 to 40 percent. Is that is that true outside of New York is that, uh, as well, or is that just in New York? No, outside New York, system-wide. Oh, system-wide, really. Is across it, the is states, more... not, not international, across the states. How do, why are such of uh, why is it so why do you have so much uh, of your business um, through delivery? That's that's a lot. Is I mean, is are you choosing mar? Is I mean, is that kind of a subject of where of the markets you're going into, or is that a? I think I think it's not only us. All other brands are taking that route. It's not only the hall guys because sure. I order everything from from all other brands, food perspective through delivery. So if I'm doing that myself, people also are doing that. They rather pay a few more dollars for delivery, and they don't have to drive even for Starbucks to to that symbol. So I think everyone is doing that now, taking that route, that delivery route now. But yeah. we have actually, which is very really cool, we have opened our first location in California, which is delivery only, which is mm-hmm. I'm very excited about that. We opened that I think a month or two ago, and. Yeah, we're under the process of testing that location for delivery only, see how it's going to work. And if it's something that works well, we'll uh, roll it out system-wide to other franchisees. Do you, do you imagine that that's something, is it, is it, how, how would it work? Is it, would it be sort of like a hub model where, where, you know, you sort of funnel a lot of your delivery orders through a specific location? Or do you imagine, you know, just having them scattered in high delivery neighborhoods? No, it it will be it will be similar look similar as our location. All all what's gonna happen? There is no dine-in or no walk-in just to purchase. It's gonna be through all delivery services or in-house delivery in addition to catering. So so there will no customers not gonna be customer inside this location. Just everything is coming out from the store as delivery. You will have the kitchen to cook our fresh food, all of these things, except customers coming in to dine so no really need for a dining area for customers because it's only delivery mm-hmm. right and right and that's why we're testing yeah so you get a smaller location i'd imagine exactly. that's cheaper to you know and so the unit economics are probably a bit better and i mean honestly if you're doing 30 to 40 percent delivery as it is um you obviously have a need for you know, potential need for, for, for this sort of thing in, in more locations. Cause clearly your customers really like to have their food delivered. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you say you're a big delivery customer yourself. I am. I am. I mm-hmm. order my, uh, a lot of my food through delivery. <laughs> yeah. Right. Is it, uh, so what, if you, if you had some advice to other operators, especially small operators who are looking at, at, handling delivery because we have there's a lot of questions in terms of you know how you should you know how you know how to make it work from a financial perspective and you know how you deal with third-party delivery companies and and you know and the answers to me seem to be all over the map and we have companies that completely embrace it such as yours and then we have companies that are absolutely resistant to it what's your what's your general advice to other operators in terms of how you you know how you you know deal with third-party delivery. So there, are, when you speak about delivery, uh, third-party deliveries, there are a few things that you need to look at from the beginning. So the first thing was is the nego- negotiation process with that specific third-party to see where you're gonna fall in from their percentage, how much are they gonna charge you, which is really really important. I have I know some delivery services charge up to 30, 35 percent on every specific order, which is very high and 
And if I, if I am a halal guys or I'm any restaurant or small operation, I cannot afford to, to give 35% of my business like that to a delivery mm-hmm. service. So it's based on the negotiation that we have with these third party. In addition to looking at the food quality that is going to arrive to that customer. So let's say it's going to take the delivery service 30 to 40 minutes to deliver your product to the customer. Is your, is your product gonna, is going to still be fresh? Is your product still going to be good for that customer? And you get about all these measure of freshness when it comes to freshness, when it comes to food quality, staying the same, all of these things. That way, you're not losing these customers. These customers don't get a bad idea of who you are or they don't enjoy the food. In addition to you getting a good percentage from the delivery service, uh, that's 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 mm-hmm. really much the stuff that you need to look at the uh, delivery time how long it takes with these third party deliveries how long it takes to arrive to the customers because if i'm ordering if i'm ordering food from anywhere i focus how long the food will arrive to me i don't want to eat cold food so get about all these measure in place for yourself and in the customer shoes and see if you're a customer what would your expectation be and if I'm mm-hmm. a store or a small operator, for me to be profitable and successful, what kind of margins or what kind of uh, cost that will require me to make this work? So those mm-hmm. few small things you can look at and uh, make the decision where to go as delivery service or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you charge higher prices for delivery orders or not? We don't in New York City for corporate. We don't for corporate, but uh, we have a lot of our... Uh, our franchise locations uh, do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And you haven't really noticed any any difference in how much they order because usually I haven't heard anything. Not necessarily. It's, it varies a dollar or two. Not a huge yeah. difference. Right, right, right. Sweet. Okay, sir. Well, uh, Ahmed, this was fantastic, and and we wish you uh, luck with uh, your future growth, and, and thank you very much for joining the podcast this week. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me today. Lately, I've been writing an awful lot about the challenges being faced by a pair of small, publicly traded casual dining companies, J. Alexander's and Kona Grill. In J. Alexander's case, the company is facing activist investors who rightfully point out that the company's stock price hasn't quite reflected its generally strong performance over the past three years. Kona, meanwhile, is facing a likely bankruptcy, probably has to close a bunch of restaurants, and is for sale, and it is at war with its former CEO. The two are among the smallest publicly traded standalone restaurant chains on Wall Street, but being publicly traded has frankly helped neither company succeed. Mostly, it has only served to cost both companies millions of dollars in legal and financial fees to keep pace with reporting rules governing public companies. Investors have long yearned to have an opportunity to invest in small companies, much like they used to do in the 1980s and 1990s when the market accepted chains with as few as a handful of locations. The reality today, however, is that so many small investors are buying up stock and institutional dollars are focused on larger game. Small companies simply can't get the attention they need to attract investors, and often the attention they do get is not the attention they want. They often get vulnerable to activist investors and others who buy up large numbers of shares but might not necessarily have the brand's long-term interests at heart. 
Kona Grill likely won't be public for long, assuming it gets sold after a bankruptcy filing. As for J. Alexander's, a sale to an outside investor or a merger with another company probably seems inevitable. The market simply isn't friendly for small publicly traded restaurants anymore. And that does it for this week's edition of A Deeper Dive, which was, as always, edited by the fantastic Christine Cawthon. Artwork by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. Contributors to this podcast include Peter Romeo, Sarah Rushworth, Heather Lally, and Pat Colby. You can find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash podcast. You can also find them on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host, podcast producer, and the executive editor of Restaurant Business Magazine. Thank you for listening.